day of Advent where the theme is and that we celebrate the lighting of the joy candle, which by the way, in case you're wondering, is the pink one. You know, it's got its own designated special colour, uh, just so you're all up to speed and, you know, kosher with Advent proceedings. Now, um, let's dive straight into it. So, John chapter 1, John chapter 1 is where we're going this morning. Uh, the teaching text is John chapter 1. I'll start reading in verse 6 and we'll read through 6 through 12-ish, 13. Um, and then we'll hop over to verse 19. So open up your Bibles and let's read along in John chapter 1, starting in verse 6. It says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light, he came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, he gave those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Skipping to verse 19. Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, Why then do you baptize with, if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied. But among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. In 2017... Six years ago or so, we moved as a church, we relocated from the school hall that we were meeting in into this premises here where we sit. And at the time, I was the only person on staff at the church. And so I would spend my weeks sitting in what is now the prayer room down on the far corner of the building and uh, doing the things that pastors do on, you know, weekdays. And, and uh, so it meant that I had plenty of time to get out and get to know our new neighborhood in ways that I hadn't previously known it. And so walking, you know, up and down Colombo Street, I would walk past the, the Triton Dairy, I would walk past the Sydenham Bakery. And I started to encounter the poor in our city and got to know them in ways that I hadn't previously. I uh, got to know in particular one man named Mickey who became a bit of a friend and he'd pop in regularly for a cup of coffee, use the bathrooms and we ended up having a series of conversations, Mickey and I. And, uh, and before too long, Mickey started bringing along some of his friends and so I started getting to know them. And I remember, and you know, we, we went to, as a church, we ended up helping out Mickey in a bunch of different ways. It wasn't just about helping him find food or giving him a cup of coffee now and then. Um, we actually, you know, he'd come in and he'd use the phone to kind of be able to call and get things set up. And we, you know, helped him get online and lodge some applications and helped him get a government-issued ID so he could apply for jobs and he could actually apply for a house and all these kinds of things that we were able to do to help uh, along the way. And at one point, I even drove Mickey up to Nelson for a job. <laughs> uh, and uh, and um, anyways, all that to say, 
I remember one day quite early on, whilst in the, in the kitchen here, talking with Mickey and making a, a lineup of coffees for Mickey and all his mates, and, um, and had this feeling of grief kind of wash over me. Because I was awakened all of, all of a sudden with the first time that I'd come face to face with this, this reality of really my own limited sight, like of what I had failed to see, not only of those in our city, but of the God who lives among them. I mean, these people had been in my line of sight for years, and yet this was one of the first times that I'd actually seen them. I mean, we all probably have had moments like this, right? Maybe in small ways, maybe even this year, something that was hidden in plain sight that all of a sudden, whether in a big way or small way, in a spiritual way or some other normal way, finally becomes visible to you. Maybe it was that toothbrush that you discovered or that surprise jug of milk in the back of the fridge that you didn't know was there or maybe the love of your life. Whether that's, uh, you know, we have this, hum- uh, as humans, we have this odd propensity and ability to see what we want to see, don't we? Or not see what we don't want to see. We have this ability to limit or expand our gaze based on our preferences or our paradigms or our perceptions. Sight or our ability to see something, even if it's right before our face and even if it's wildly significant, has much to do with what we think we know about the object or the person in our view. See, seeing something rightly, not missing even the most obvious realities, usually has less to do with what we're beholding and more about the posture or the context in which we are beholding that thing. And so the question that plagued me as I got to know Mickey, the question that I was asking God was, what else am I missing? What else have I failed to recognize or failed to see that's right in front of me? Excuse me while I adjust. As you know, today is the third Sunday of Advent. We're well on our way together on this journey toward Christmas. And Advent means literally means arrival. Advent is to arrive. The arrival of a notable person or a notable thing or a significant event. Uh, it also serves as the first season in the, ca- in the church year leading up to Christmas. So it's those first, including the, sun, the four Sundays that proceed and lead up to Christmas. And so this Advent journey that we've been on, this road that we walk to the celebration of Christmas is one that, despite all the hustle and bustle and busyness of the season, demands our attention. It calls us to focus. It invites us to see maybe in a new way what is right before our very eyes. And in order to do this, we'll have to back up from the manger. That's where we'll get on next Sunday, Christmas Eve. And as we did with Pastor David last week, spend our time with two men named John. Now, John number one, or who I'm affectionately calling um, John the A or John the Apostle, um, this is Jesus' disciple the writer of the Gospel of John, right? And, and uh, this is the guy who wrote the words that we read this morning. John was Jesus' friend and he lived and he ate with him. He saw Jesus do all kinds of miracles and was present to lots of wild events really in Jesus' life, including his death, which means that he was writing from a first-hand account of what took place when Jesus was on earth. Now, what we really need to know about John number one, or John the A, John the Apostle, is that he knew Jesus, didn't just know about him, but he actually knew Jesus. And that sets the tone and the context for what he says as he begins his book and as he's writing uh, about, he starts his whole account of both what he believed and what he knew the Messiah of the world would be. And so John begins to tell this story of how he lives and this is how he starts it. He says, God has come. 
He moved into our human neighborhood. And Jesus, this man Jesus, he is God. He was the one that everyone had been waiting for. He is the savior of the world. John makes it really explicit. John starts his whole book out this way because for him, it encompassed the most important message of his life. Now, the second John, or John number two, or John the B, if you like, for his friends, John the Baptist was an interesting fellow. See, John the Baptist, as we learned last week, yeah, I mean, he, he, he at the same time, in all of his weirdness and wild ways, was a key figure in the life and the story of Christmas and of Jesus. John number two, or John the Baptist, was Jesus' cousin. And he lived, just as Jesus did, this prophetic and miraculous life from his conception all the way through to his bizarre death. John's life was wild and weird in many ways, and yet at the same time, it was deeply woven like the other John, John the Apostle, and intertwined with the life and the message of Jesus. See, from birth, John the Baptist was given a clear purpose and a clear message for his life. And as, as we read today in the first part of our scripture, he was meant to tell the world about this Messiah, to tell everyone about Jesus, that this rescuer was coming to set the world to rights. And his goal was to ready everyone, to get them ready for this one who would come, to prepare them for his arrival. And he was to do this through the telling and the retelling of those ancient promises and prophecies that would show the world how to look for this Messiah in all the ways that they were told that he would come. So John, as we read, was a witness to the light, a witness to the Messiah. And he was also, in many ways, a disruption a disruption to the darkness. See, John spent his life telling the world that there was something more to see if only they had eyes to see it. Now remember, sight does not always mean vision. And that was true in particular for those who were hearing these messages from both of our Johns. See, when it comes to those who were meant to see the light, it's important for us to know that they, they're set against the backdrop of all these messages that were being shot at them. See, before these Johns stood, uh, stood this whole community that for over 400 years had been hoping and longing and expecting the Messiah to come. See, before John the Baptist began wearing animal skins and eating wild locusts and grasshoppers and, and shouting that God was here, stood these traditions and rituals and rhythms and practices that the Jewish people uh, had regularly practiced and and followed to call them to look forward to this exact moment, to prepare them for it, to look forward towards this other deliverance, much like the one they had experienced uh, from Egypt. You see, this moment, this moment we're going to explore in just a minute in the Scriptures, while seemingly an odd introduction to Christmas and two men named John, uh, was actually a fulcrum point in the history of the Jewish people and one would argue in the history of the world. Because what they were trained, it was what they had been training their whole lives to see. And yet, it seems that many missed it altogether. So today we're going to look at this moment and dig a little further into the scriptures. And then we're going to take an honest inventory of our own hearts. So with that, would you look back with me in John chapter 1? encourage you to just kind of keep your, keep your, finger, op- uh, your finger in the, in the, in the text there. Because we'll kind of um, pop in and out of this uh, over, over the next few minutes. John chapter 1, reading in verse 6 again, says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John, and he came as a witness to testify concerning the light, that light, so that through him all might believe he himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, 
the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. So here we begin with John number one, John the Apostle speaking in this kind of cosmic and, and, and almost meta way about the coming of the Messiah. And he's drawing our attention to this historical fulcrum moment. And it's not what we'd expect. See, he starts out basically says right, right here, uh, the, the light of the world came. The Messiah here is in the picture. And, and John the Baptist, John the B, was sent to tell you so. Right? So despite being ready in a bizarre turn of events, we, we, we read that though he came and, and when he did, the people didn't recognize him. So now, the, world, the word recognize here, it, it also can be translated as meaning to know, to know someone. Uh, and, and here it means both understanding or, or perceiving, but it also means to know more personally, more, much more intimately, like a husband might know a wife. And so what we're told here is, is not only the world didn't perceive God in their midst, but they also didn't know Him personally. And so this is mind-blowing in many ways because, I mean, think about it. For over 400 years, the people of God, they had centered their life not only around rituals that were meant to draw their attention and ready them for this exact moment, but you've also got this man who was a little weird and a little wild, out of the box, and he's, stra- he's hanging around and he's, he's yelling out, hey guys, this is it, this is the moment, they pay attention. And yet we read that they still didn't recognize him. So look down in verse 19, we see, now this was John's testimony, it says. And what I want you to see is that now the, 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 John the Apostle, the author, actually zooms in on the prophet John the Baptist. And, and it's here that we read that John finds himself in the middle of a group of religious leaders. That's who's with him. Those, again, who would have been trained and trained others to see the coming of the Messiah. And he begins by humbly stating that, no, 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 I'm not the one you're looking for. He's not the Messiah. He's just a witness. So we don't know exactly why he starts out like that or or how he found himself amongst this crew. But what we can at least speculate is that there was a bit of a buzz going on around John's message. And the religious people, they had to scope it out and get to the bottom of it. And so, man, do they begin to drill him. And in essence, they say, who are you and why are you speaking this message? And in response, John in verse 23 quotes this ancient scripture with a prophecy in it. And the prophecy is about himself. You see... Think about it for a minute. Like, like, if you were in this moment, if you were John the Baptist in this scene, picture it. Wouldn't you love to just give those religious leaders a bit of a wink as you're kind of like quoting this Old Testament scripture, right? Like, like hey, you know what I mean? I mean, if, if you were about to say something like John the Baptist was about to say, wouldn't you want to be like, it's me, guys, right here, you know? I mean, maybe, maybe it's just me, right? But I mean, the, so John speaks it out and he's doing so like in, a, in, a, in this punchy kind of cheeky way. Says, right from Isaiah chapter 40, verse three, he says, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Right? This is the moment not just for the leaders, but for the people of the day. See, John's not only saying that the Messiah was coming, and that, but that he was here. He was saying, me being here in the flesh before you, John the Baptist, is part of the fulfillment of the prophecy, indicating that it's time. And this should have been like, whoa! Ding, 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 ding. Everyone, pay attention. It's happening. It's here. It's on. Game on. So exciting, right? And yet, instead, we don't get that kind of reaction. What we get is crickets. Like an average Sunday at the well. Oh, I'm joking, eh? Come on, easy. 
you know, the religious leaders, you know, without skipping a beat, they're they're, they're unable to see and they're they're fixated in on this answer that they want to hear. And so they say, well, well, if, if you're not the Messiah, then why do you do these things that a Messiah would do? Why are you baptizing people? which to us maybe seems like a bit of a weird question for them to ask John, but, but here it's important because John's response shows us that, that, that it, it defines not only who he is, but who Jesus would be. He says, I baptize with water. And in doing so, he's emphasizing that his ministry focuses more on physical tools and using physical tools and rituals to symbolize their real meaning. Whereas Jesus comes and, 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 and he highlights in the ministry of Jesus, he's going to go far beyond any symbolizing or rituals. He's going to embody and enact actual, real, saving power. And so John knew what he was doing and what he was saying. So in verse 26 and, 7, and 27, we see he wraps up the moment because it didn't go quite as well as he had hoped. And he boldly says to them, among you stands one you do not know. Whew. That's tough. And I wonder if that's the truth for some of us here this morning. Maybe that's the reason you're here in church this morning. It's because you've been around God and faith and church for some time. And yet, among you, friends, stands one you do not know and the invitation this morning is will you recognize him will you see him will you receive him he's the one who comes after me john says the straps of whose sandals i'm not worthy to tie it's almost like this is like a bit of a mic drop moment for john the baptist right a phrase spoken in a very human moment amongst a community with what we believe to be jesus present right there and it not only summarizes John the Baptist's conversation with the people, but it also summarizes the intent of John the, uh, John the Apostle, the author's heart as well. See, John, our author, he writes in his book explicitly about the meaning of life, about this cosmic entrance that the Messiah makes in the world. And in his first chapter, he basically says, don't you see it? Don't you, don't you see him, the light, the one who pierces the dark places in us? And in the world around us, he's here. And yet at the end of the chapter, he reflects and says, but nobody noticed. Nobody saw him. And then we have John the Baptist, and he's speaking into this real life community and into the community that would in both time and place be where Jesus lived and had friendships and had made uh, new neighbors. And it's here that he reiterates John's message, the author's message, but in a more communal and maybe more concrete tangible way Um, and yet he too recognizes that despite Jesus being in their actual midst it seems that no one noticed and so both our Johns grieve the tragedy found within Advent the tragedy of the king who came and yet was missed by so many now in this great tragedy in this season though I think many of us would excuse ourselves for various reasons but we're invited to find our place in the story in Advent we're called to center and recenter our lives on the truth of what it means that God put on flesh and entered into the human story that God came near he is Emmanuel God with us he made himself knowable God became knowable he he made himself known to us but we all know that's easier said than done because the truth is in advent just like an anniversary or a birthday we're invited to recount and revisit even collectively remember the details of this story and where it begins to intersect with our lives where it collides with uh, where we're living and what we're believing and what we're hoping for 
And just like in any other relationship, this once a year moment offers us the gift of perspective. The space to truly celebrate, but to also recalibrate. To see and to consider what maybe we too have missed along the way. And that isn't an easy thing to do because both celebration and recalibration are messy and revealing events because we know in hindsight as we look back, hindsight's, as they say, 2020, which means that we'll have to consider what we're willing to confront and even ask of ourselves and of God in this season and how those two things demand a measure of honesty that, we could, that could either disrupt us or could comfort us. So in order to get there, to actually place ourselves truly in this Advent moment, we'll have to start by observing the tragedy that our Johns have witnessed to in the text today. You'll remember that we were told the religious leaders, both the priest and the people, missed Jesus. Both were studied and practiced to see Him, and still they missed Him. They didn't. And the question we're left with in that moment is, why? And the answer, though fairly obvious, is one that is not so unfamiliar to most of us, if we're honest. See, to put it simply, Jesus did not come in the way that the priest or the people thought He would or should. And he didn't come in the way that the people had hoped that he might. You see, they were looking for this conquering hero, this warrior king who would fight for them and would come against Rome and overthrow the oppressors. And even the prophecies about this king was that he would be their ruler, that he would be a wonderful counselor, that he would be a prince of peace. You know, and it was their understanding and their perception or interpretation of who he would be and how he would come and what he would do that ultimately led them to a blindness that kept them from him altogether. Jesus, this poor carpenter's son, you know, a poor mason from Nazareth, a bastard child to most, how could he be what they were looking for? You see, for me, it's been very easy to judge the priests and religious leaders, to judge the people in our text. I mean, I'm honestly like, are you kidding me? You have trained your whole lives for this moment. You've reoriented your practices around waiting and anticipating and expecting the Messiah. How could you miss it? It's happening right in front of you. All these signposts pointing to Jesus. How could you possibly miss it? And I, can, I feel myself getting a little worked up as I start thinking about it, right? Until I actually begin to consider that their humanity is just a lot like my own. And how I too have expectations on Jesus. And how we all do, right? Whether you follow Him or not. And just like the priest and like these people, your expectation of Him is personal. Because by His very nature, we know God is personal. He is knowable. And so you too, you you likely have an idea about who He should be or how He should help or, or what He should look like and what He should think like and what He should be like and how He should be showing up and how He should be helping you and maybe helping your loved ones. Again, not just in some cosmic or universal way, but in a personal and real way. And therein lies a bit of our problem, or the rub, if I'm honest, for most of us. You see, we can easily divorce the journey of Advent, this Christmas story, from the reality of God's arrival and how that intersects with our own real lives. And we cannot divorce the reality of those in the text from who we are and how we too will experience God coming to us. Because like them, some of them missed Him because He was too humble, And some of them missed him because they were not humble enough. And I wonder if that's a bit of a mirror moment for each of us. Because we can do the same, can't we? So how do we recognize Jesus and 
What are those things that live within us that might keep us from recognizing Him in our midst? Maybe a better way to ask this is how do we prepare well for the coming of Jesus, for this celebration of Christmas and the gift and the reality of His presence among us? I believe our preparation starts first by confronting our circumstances and then surrendering our crown. Weird language, I know, but stick with me. Hopefully it'll make sense as we journey through. Now, I know many of you in this room this morning. I've gotten to know you over the years. I've had the privilege of serving as your pastor, and I get to do life with some of you, you know? And so I know that even, even for myself, I know there are many of us here right now who are rolling into this holiday season with some kind of a deep ache within might be big, some might be smaller. And you see Christmas, while it's this magical time of year, it's also a revealing one. And so most of us know that there's something about this season that, like water, is really good at finding the lowest places. And for many of us, the declaration of God's presence and His arrival only serves to like drudge up a reverberation of frustration and pain. If God is really in our midst, then why does life, my life look like this? Why is my heart broken? Why hasn't he rescued me and healed me? Why, you see, Christmas can evoke either this holy imagination of what could be possible, but it can also provoke a holy aggravation in us as well, especially for those of us in places of hopelessness and desperation. Our circumstances or how we perceive God in them often shadow our ability to truly see God in our midst. And so we have to confront them. Many of you have cried out and begged and looked for God's presence and deliverance for you only to feel as though He's far off or too small in His coming or even maybe just far too late. And I've been there. I mean, just like I know many of you and have done life with you, you've known me as well and journeyed and done life with me over a number of years. And so you know I've been there too. Even in this past year, I was walking through a season of genuine desperation that kind of began to lead into spiritual disorientation. Don't worry, I wasn't apostate, I wasn't going to quit my job or anything like that. You know, I wasn't going fully crazy, but I was wrestling with God. I was really wondering where He was in my life. And one of the things that was most helpful for me was a conversation, um, actually better call it a confrontation, with a trusted friend on a call that I had. And this friend, he listened to me as I put God on the stand for being such a failure to me and as I accused God of being indifferent and uncaring and absent when I needed it most and after I'd finished this friend quietly in a smattering of words that I really don't remember reminded me of this truth that God rarely comes to us in the ways that we might expect but he comes nonetheless and for a reason that I can't explain that reality came crashing into my heart. It shattered the lens that actually blocked my view of seeing God's presence with me. It shattered the expectations that I had of how He should come and help me and it forced me to shift my eyes back to the places I thought He wasn't only to see where He was. And I have to tell you because I know this is true. When that happened, everything was different because when you can recognize God with you everything changes when you can recognize God with you everything changes and at the intersection of our pain or our circumstances or whatever it is is this invitation to see God 
for you to find him in your midst. But at the same time, there's also the potential to miss him, to allow your circumstances or expectations to be the roadblock to recognition. If we reduce God to less than our expectations and allow that to be the barometer for his presence, we will always miss him. Often the way God meets us looks a lot more messy or a lot slower or more complex than we'd want. And and instead of waiting to see where he actually is, most of us just divert our eyes away and claim he was never with us after all. But in this, this is the beauty and the gift of Christmas is that no matter what our perception is, he is always with us. Advent, for those of you who cannot find him, Advent is for you. It's for those of you who right now are carrying angst and broken hearts. It's for those who carry any kind of ache or sense of tragedy in this season. Christmas is a stark reminder that though Jesus may not come the way you want him or expect him to, there's no parade of pomp and, and circumstance or big celebration or you know whatever. The truth is that he still comes. He still comes. See, God is personal. He's not prescriptive. And He has come through Jesus to meet us, to empathize with us, to suffer with us right here and right now. He's not playing some game. He's not, He is genuinely jealous for you to find Him, to see Him, to be with Him as He really is, not necessarily as you want Him to be. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes this. He says, The celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect and who look forward to something greater to come. Advent is precisely for those of us who come into this season with need. For those who need God to come and to be in our midst, in our darkness, we we need to find Him. And though He may not come in the way we want Him to, He will still come. But in order to see Him, we need to be willing, I think, to confront the reality of our circumstances and honestly allow Him to come as He wants to, to be revealed to you as He really is. And I can tell you it's always far better when He comes this way. So for some of us, it begins with confronting our circumstance, reflecting and reorienting, maybe recalibrating our expectations of, who God is and how He's coming. But for some others, maybe your ability to recognize God is not as much connected to your circumstances as much as it is connected to your heart. You see, God's coming in Advent isn't always a comfort. For some, it's more of a disruption. And within the story of God coming into the world is the inauguration of a kingdom. And within that, it means there's a king. And when the king walks into the room and breaks into our world, all lesser kingdoms are revealed. You see, in Advent, what becomes clear is that there is only one kingdom that will last. There is really only one king who can rule. And for many, it has been, or it it is an easy thing, to reduce God. Whether we do this consciously or subconsciously, we reduce God down to sweet, helpless baby Jesus in a manger, right? And and maybe you go, that's my favorite Jesus, the sweet baby Jesus in the manger, right? But think about how that shapes and forms us. It allows us to begin to believe, actually, that that He's nothing more than that. The sweet baby Jesus in the manger, He's not big enough or strong enough or powerful enough to handle my stuff. 
he's not able to fully hint, right? And so we, 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 we reduce God down. And that picture, that image shadows the reality of his power or his ability to be known as God and ultimately our ability to recognize him. And so we end up dismissing him. Not because of he isn't what we want, but because we're failing to see him for who he actually is. And understanding that changes everything. Think about in the Christmas story, even Herod, the king who was ruling when Jesus came, he understood this. He knew that a king in his midst would challenge his kingdom, but also his ability to rule as he wanted to. He simply heard rumors that from some magi from the east who rolled through town and, and that there might be a king born in Bethlehem. And so from that, we find Herod living the rest of his life on this pendulum swing between power and paranoia. And he even inaugurates this whole genocide to keep this baby king at bay. King Herod knew what most of us failed to see is that a king in his midst would demand the giving up of his own kingdom. And it's no different for us. God's arrival in this season is an invitation for us to truly recognize God in our midst. It's also an invitation to recognize Him for who He actually is and for who He will be when He comes again. Because God is not just some accessory to the Christmas season. You know, He's not simply a symbol to value. He is a king to be trembled at. And as John reminded us a couple of weeks ago, when he returns in his second advent, we will see him coming. And this time he won't come as sweet baby Jesus in the manger. He'll come on a horse and with a sword. Advent is for those of us who need to remember that we are not the king or queen, the ruler or authority. We are not the rightful rulers of our lives. And failing to recognize that will cost us truly being able to experience Jesus in our midst. Advent is for those of us who need to be reminded that their kingdom and their crown has to go in order to truly see the one who has come into the world. Confronting our circumstances, laying down our crown. These are just two really simple things and there's so much more that could be said about them but these two things I think this week help us open the door to be to move towards Christmas Day and the wonderful celebration that it is because both of these things can be a catalyst for our sight as they allow us to see God with us in our midst even now. Henry Nouwen, he says this about Advent. He says, the Lord is coming, always coming. When you have ears to hear and eyes to see, you will recognize Him at any moment of your life. Life is Advent. Life is recognizing the coming of the Lord. And friends, that's my hope and my prayer for each one of us this Advent, that we will recognize Him at any moment of your life. That it wouldn't just be like a, in the morning when I spend quiet time with Jesus. No, it would be as you're walking down the street on your way to work or as you're, as you're, as you're going to catch up with friends, as you're, as you're hanging out with family over the holidays, you would recognize Jesus in any and every moment. If we're to experience this season as it was meant to be, we have to be willing to learn to recognize God within it and confront anything that keeps us from truly seeing. So in Advent, we begin with what we see. John, our author, tells us that Jesus is the light of the world. We'll talk more about that next Sunday on Christmas Eve. And that imagery is meant to tell us that His coming would illuminate both what we need to see and what we have failed to see. 
as we wait for Jesus in this season, as we anticipate his arrival, we'll be invited to have eyes wide open to see him and to see the ways he's coming or maybe has already come to us. And so the question, friends, that we're left with, the question each of us have to ask is, will we recognize him or not? And so let's come to a time of prayer now. And as we pray, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would come and meet with us and minister to us. So come, Holy Spirit. Would you give us, as we read about here, those eyes to see and ears to hear the ways that you have and are coming to us today and this week, this Advent. Lord, may we not be like those who miss you because of our own circumstances or our own set of expectations. and May we not be like those who miss you because of our own pride and um, unwillingness to lay down the rule of our own lives, to surrender our lives to you. Come, Holy Spirit. Grace us to see you fully for who you are. Come, Holy Spirit, make the Lord Jesus knowable to us, not just in some cosmic and universal way, but in a personal and realized way here and now today. Come, Holy Spirit. 